is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. On the menu for today's show, worry and fear growing in Kyiv. Russian troops advancing in towards Ukraine's capital in the second day of the invasion. Reporters documenting attacks and military activity across the country will go in-depth into the way from Ukraine, where one journalist is with his friends preparing for the worst. We also hear from a professor who teaches classes for a university here in the U.S., but also does so from Kiev. We'll ask him why he's there and how he's holding up. And Russia says it wants peace talks, but negotiations for an end to the fighting broke down today. The president issuing sanctions on Vladimir Putin himself and also Russia's foreign minister. We'll look into whether those go far enough. There's talk of hitting Russia hard through major international banking systems. That SWIFT system. We'll talk about that. President also making a historic announcement today. The nomination of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. She'd be the first uh, black woman to serve on the high courts if confirmed by the Senate. The CDC changing up the masking guidelines this comes as L.A. County's new indoor mask rules, a bit relaxed from where they were, go into effect. But we start in Ukraine. Journalist Romeo works for the New Voice of Ukraine. That's a, an English language news outlet there. Romeo, we understand you are on the outskirts of Kiev, uh, if I'm correct. Where are you exactly? From a town called Vysokiv, uh, which is... Uh, I'm not sure exactly how far it is distance-wise, um, but it's about an hour on train uh, from Kiev going southwards. I'd say probably around maybe 40, 50 kilometers. It's not that far. And what is, from your vantage point, uh, the situation that's unfolding now in Kiev and, and also in, in Ukraine? Well, in Kiev, everyone is preparing to fight, basically. Uh, people who well, either preparing to hide or preparing to fight, one of the one of the two. Uh, anyone who's not ready to fight is hiding, and everyone else is, is making Molotovs and getting ready to uh, resist what is expected to come, which is a Russian push uh, through Kiev to the government quarter. When you say making Molotov, Molotov cocktails uh, to yes, explode. Correct. Yes, correct. The, uh, the country's parliament, the RADA, uh, sent through their official telegram channel a nice little infographic on how to make a Molotov cocktail and has instructed everyone willing to throw them at oncoming Russian tanks. Have you, you've been obviously traveling around a bit. Have you actually seen any Russian troops? Uh, no, not at the moment. I've been, uh, I was previously uh, at home in my apartment, which is in a suburb of Kiev, uh, which has not seen any uh, fighting as of yet, though. One of the reasons I left is uh, I believe the Russians will probably move that way since my suburb is on one of the main roads leading into the city. Do you have? And I wanted to get a little out of the way before they get there. Do you have family there? Uh, yeah, I have uh, some of my uh, very very close friends and colleagues uh, who are stuck in Kiev and either in shelter or in their apartments. And what and what is their mood? Are they, are they afraid? Are they are they defiant? Or is well, it a combination? Everyone is terrified. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. Everyone is terrified. Um, but we're a hardy bunch, Ukrainians, uh, and people are trying to keep their spirits up. They we do believe we will win, and that has uh, been keeping morale up. But again, it's only the second day uh, of the invasion, 
going on the third. So it's still very early days uh, to say anything really definite. Were you surprised that the Russians not only came into Ukraine, but certainly went far beyond the eastern portions of the country, all the way to apparently at least the outskirts of Kiev? No, not at all. And actually, uh, back in April, I did a podcast episode on the initial buildup that they did uh, last year uh, during that month. And we uh, put together a couple of scenarios, uh, my host and I, for what the Russians could be planning to do with that initial buildup. And we, we marked it as our worst-case scenario that they would make a push for Kiev. But as we can see now, that that is exactly what happened. When you say uh, that Ukrainians are going to win, I mean, the Russians are quite formidable foes. Uh, how do you anticipate that happening? Well, the idea is that our army has been combat-tested over the past eight years. We've gotten a lot of support from our Western partners. And... This is our land. This isn't some foreign place that we have no attachment to. Our parents lived and died here. Our grandparents lived and died here. My great-grandfather fought the Nazis uh, right here in Ukraine. And now it comes time to face another imperial foe that wants to take our land. And the Nazis didn't do it in the 40s. And I don't see why the Russians will do it now. You said people are terrified. Are you? Uh, I am, I have a healthy level of terror, yes, but uh, now that I've been moving uh, out of Kiev, I'm more concerned with getting to uh, my wife in Venice. So Venice is the home of uh, one of the Ukrainian Air Force's main bases, and air sirens have been going off there all day. So I'm a little more worried for her than myself at the moment. Are you personally prepared to fight the Russians? Uh, yes, I actually wanted to uh, enlist in the Territorial Defense Forces when I get back to my hometown, uh, but we'll see how that pans out. That's uh, Romeo, journalist, works for the New Voice of Ukraine, English-language news outlet, trying to get back to his uh, his hometown. Right now we head back to Ukraine. Tim Ilovinov is an economics professor at the University of Pittsburgh. He's originally from Ukraine but came here to the U.S. to work, but now he's back in Kiev and still teaches classes there. He joins us now from the Ukrainian capital. Thank you, Professor, for being uh, with us. Uh, you're, you're still teaching? Are you, are you teaching students in Kiev, or are you teaching remotely students back here in the States? Well, uh, I lead the Kiev School of Economics, and uh, I also am faculty at Pitt, so I teach you know, and go back and forth. Uh, and I came to Ukraine, I think, this last uh, Monday or Sunday. And what can you tell us about what's been happening, uh, I guess, your time uh, late tonight? Well, you know, so it's the second day. So it hasn't been yet 48 hours. Uh, we woke up uh, uh, last morning at 5, maybe 30, 5.15 local time because of explosions. Uh, but, you know, most people who have not experienced it uh, for the first time, they don't realize it. it. It's not like you read it in the news, you know, these uh, missiles landing in, in the capital of Ukraine. You just hear loud explosions, and it could be like, uh, you know, uh, I wasn't even sure, you know, I thought that maybe my neighbor was moving furniture upstairs, you know. <laughs> and then, you, you, you seriously, it's like, you know, you wake up and there's this noise, and like, what's, can I go back to sleep, you know. Okay, but you know better than that. So, you, you know, I'm, I'm going to check the news. And, of course, the news, because it's happening now, the new, and it's for the first time, so the news is not responding. And, and you know, there's no, 
warning sirens. There's no sounds because there's, you know, no one, it's the first time and no one, you know, has experienced it before. Um, so we, we actually have uh, emergency protocols for that at the Kiev School of Economics um, in, in Kiev. Uh, and that protocol requires the top management calling a meeting immediately within 30 minutes or so. Um, so we did call a meeting, and at that meeting, it, uh, there were several people who were closer to the explosion, and they have been able to verify that these are missiles striking. Uh, this is an air attack. Now, I, I know, um, I know and, that, well, let, me inter- yeah. let me interject for a second. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I know that uh, many people in Kiev, because we've seen uh, this on, on television here, uh, have taken to the, I guess it's the subway system, is that right, uh, to, to uh, take shelter. Uh, have you done so as, as yet? Uh, no, I have not, and no one did it uh, in the first during the first uh, airstrike uh, uh, yesterday. Uh, but I think today people have been going to metro stations routinely, and some people are staying overnight. And you know, most of the cities, or at least many of major cities now, have been uh, sounding sirens and getting warnings of airstrikes. Let's say Lviv. Is the city in western Ukraine, very close to Polish border, had I think four air uh, airstrike warnings today. People had to go to shelter. And what's going through your head now with with these reports that you know the Russian troops are not that far away from where you are, and they're they're making their way closer? Well, I got to the suburbs, um, you know, and my first attempt to get to the suburbs was not successful because I got actually in the direction where paratroopers were. Uh, landed, you know, uh, and so actually, then our family and extended family, uh, we had to move to another location which was not prepared, so we had to find a hotel and other things. Um, but um, you know, essentially, you know, it's night here, and uh, the way you know, we're hoping we won't be raided tonight, um, and uh, we have all our belongings next to us. Uh, even including, you know, clothing. So basically, if you if if something happens and you wake up, you you grab what you need to do, even if you're half asleep, and you can evacuate, you know. And we have all the plans that, you know, if our area comes under attack, where we move next, and you know, things like that. Are you there with a the family? Uh, yes, my wife is here, her mom is here, and my sister, you know, a number of people. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious. We in our last uh, segment, we spoke with another gentleman uh, also who is uh, currently in Ukraine, uh, who was saying that he was confident that at the end of the day, um, Ukrainians will win out over the Russians. Do you share that confidence? Well, you know, so um, unfortunately, this conflict really has to be worked out in the field, apparently. And it's really, really, really tragic. You know, it's like we're in the 21st century, you know, we're not in the middle of the 20s, you know, when don't take us back 50, 70 years, you know. But um, you, apparently this is how, how things will go through, right? Who is going to win? You know, Ukrainian military is, you know, is really, uh, I think, uh, has been discounted or counted off, ignored. Uh, by incalculations of uh, Putin and others. Uh, but I, I think they're putting up, uh, you know, a, a serious resistance. Um, now, uh, they, they need, you know, it's going to come down to logistics. They need supplies. They need, let's say, fuel. They need diesel to, you know, to just so the tanks are moving. They need uh, um, military supplies, for example, for javelins. They need missiles. 
uh, they need anti-helicopter uh, uh, systems. You know, some of that is being provided, and so uh, then the, the timing becomes crucial. You know, so so I think if supplies, as everyone knows, if you think for a minute, um, it is very important to have supply chains run. If supply chain, if supply um, chains are uninterrupted, and here we need the help of the European Union international community, then I think uh, the Ukrainian military has a very good uh, chance, a fighting chance. And uh, given that uh, Ukrainians truly, truly, truly want to be a sovereign nation, and it's a democracy, I think we're going to win. But, of course, if the supplies are disrupted or we don't have appropriate equipment, then, you know, the probability is much smaller. And in the shorter run, there could be all kinds of outcomes. This is a a question that you are, I think, particularly well suited to answer since you are an economics professor. Do you think the economic sanctions that have now been imposed by the U.S. and its uh, European allies on Russia, and also now, by the way, on Vladimir Putin himself, are enough? Well, it is great that they're imposed. Um, these are more severe sanctions than previously. Uh, but then let's, you know, kind of um, ask the question, enough for what, right? So enough for stopping the invasion of uh, Ukraine? No. Enough of uh, sitting down and um, negotiating in, in good faith with uh, uh, with Ukraine or with the EU or with the world, also, I don't think so because you know <laughs> he has been he has had a record of making statements. For example, uh, recently three days ago that he wouldn't invade Ukraine. Uh, so it, they will impose cost on him and they will have some effects. But you know, if we think of this as a deterrent strategy, uh, over the last 15 or so years, this deterrent strategy has not worked, right? So then there should be an alternative deterrent strategy if one wants to be serious about it. But yes, we welcome those sanctions, and I think they're important, but they should be thought of or viewed as an element of an overall strategy. When you talk to your friends and your colleagues, what is the the going sense, if you have one, of what he, what Putin actually wants? And we've asked this, you know, of, of a whole bunch of different people, and no one's inside his head, but... I mean, if it's going to be, what, overthrow the government and install some kind of puppet government? Well, you guys voted for, you know, a democratic government years ago. Does he just want these separatist reasons? Or does he pull back for that? I mean, what, what do you think the end yeah, game so, is? Yeah, so, you know, you, you cannot, you know, you can't, uh, and I also think it's kind of not a very fruitful exercise to try to think uh, what it is that um, they want or he wants, but uh, you can ask what he usually does, right? And this is not an isolated incident that uh, Ukrainian, even if you take annexation of Crimea, there was Georgia in 2008, there is Moldova with uh, Transnistria Republic, there is Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan, there was recently Belarus, there was Kazakhstan recently. So, you know, you, you, uh, plus there is, you know, his behavior and their behavior in Syria and Libya. So, you know, there is a pattern there over the last, uh, you know, decade plus. And, um, you know, that pattern is clear that it's sort of installing governments which uh, appear to be pseudo-legitimate and they request some kind of help and then they rely on Russia for legitimacy. Right. So from that perspective... 
Right. But, but let, let me ask you something because, and, and go back quickly to something yeah. you said, because you're saying that, that the economic sanctions, uh, while OK, uh, and I think that's what you said, uh, it should be just an element of something else. Right. Uh, are you Correct. are you upset, disappointed, whatever, that the U.S. has made it very clear that it has no intention because Ukraine, you know, is not part of NATO. There's no uh, mutual defense treaty between the U.S. and Ukraine. The U.S. has made it very clear it has no intentions of sending uh, soldiers into Ukraine to fight the Russians. Do you think that the U.S. Uh, should be doing that or NATO should be doing that, even though Ukraine is not a part of NATO? Well, so, you know, there's Budapest Memorandum signed in 1994. Four, uh, in which, you know, after Ukraine uh, abandoned uh, its nuclear arsenal, um, the third largest, I think, in the world, uh, maybe the fourth after the, the Soviet Union collapse, and uh, the U.S. and Russia and other countries are subject, you know, a party to that memorandum. And that requires, it has assurances of security and territorial integrity. So, in, you know, in, in that sense, the U.S. should be doing much more. But at the same time, I understand real politics and uh, uh, that the U.S. will not, you know, wouldn't want to engage in open confrontation with Russia right now. So, you know, but I am frustrated that uh, the West hasn't done more in terms of strengthening our military and providing us uh, with uh, equipment. You know, uh, it's only recently that we were allowed to get lethal weapons. Um, and they are not enough to protect them, us now. You know? So people are dying. Tim Milovanov, economics professor, University of Pittsburgh, uh, joining us there from Kiev. Tim, uh, thanks for talking to us. This is KNX In-Depth. Along with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. Russia says Vladimir Putin is ready to send a delegation to Belarus for talks with Ukraine. It comes as uh, Russian troops are making their way to Kiev. Ukraine's president had repeatedly called for talks ahead of the invasion, but it looks like hopes for a negotiated end to the conflict has faded today. This comes as the NATO response force has been activated for the first time ever to counter potential further Russian aggression. With us again is Felix Light uh, from uh, Moscow, CBS News reporter there. Felix, uh, thanks for coming back. Um, well, I mean, we just spent a, a half hour with folks who are in Ukraine talking to them. Uh, they think, both of them, that uh, eventually Ukrainians will win out over the Russians. All, I'm sure, are hoping that some negotiation may bring this to an end. Does that seem likely from your vantage point in Moscow? Well, good evening. You know what? Uh, I, I hate to be a downer on this, but I, I, I'm not so sure. You know, the the Ukrainians are putting up an extraordinary resistance against the Russian army. There's no question of that. They've inflicted probably as many casualties in 36 hours as the U.S. took in 20 years in Iraq. It's an extraordinary uh, performance from a military standpoint. But the balance of forces is very, very strongly in Russia's favor. And I also uh, I, I see that uh, sort of Putin, I see in his sort of statements that he is clearly bent on some kind of regime change, I think, in Kiev. And so I don't know how these uh, next months will sort of um, well, the next days, weeks and months will sort of play out. 
But I do think this is absolutely historic, and it's a it's it's a really earth-shattering sort of uh, couple of days, day and a half uh, for Eastern Europe and for Russia and Ukraine, certainly. Yeah, Putin was making another one of those statements last night, and and he was saying things like, "Okay, we have to get again the Nazis out of there," and then he called the, all the yeah. leaders drug addicts. Um, and that has everybody, you know, on this side of the world looking over and going, this guy has, has lost it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think quite a lot of people on this side of the world have been wondering quite that, uh, uh, today, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's almost, you know, Putin is a sort of an untrammeled sort of dictator in his own country. And, and I think with, with time and with sort of, uh, long years spent in power, uh, you start to sort of believe your own uh, propaganda. You start to believe your own spin. And I think it got to the point where he's, to a very large extent, cut off from sort of reality. And he believes these sort of bizarre notions about Ukraine being controlled by neo-Nazis and apparently also by drug addicts. But I'm not sure where that one came from. That was a new one that we heard from him today. Uh, but, you know, this is, uh, the, you know, in many ways, sort of Putin is showing us who he really is now. You know, we've known for some time that he's profoundly uh, obsessed sort of emotionally and personally with this question of Ukraine. And he, 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 it troubles him a lot. He worries about it a lot. He thinks about his historical legacy and how he must not be the sort of Russian leader who quote unquote lost Ukraine. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, I think, I think he's sort of very, very, very focused on this as his sort of great historical sort of uh, gift, as it were, to the Russian people. Felix, is there a divide between, you know, the big cities like Moscow, where you are, and the population in uh, in smaller places, the countryside, in terms of which side of this conflict they happen to, to be aligned with? Well, certainly, you know, the big cities have traditionally been more opposition-minded in Russia as a whole, and the rural areas, the smaller towns, more pro-Putin. And in a sense, we see that sort of uh, divide playing out again. We see sort of uh, a lot of sort of you know, middle class, educated, sort of wealthier Russians uh, are sort of very sort of anti-war. And we see a sort of um, reasonably large for sort of Russia protests uh, last night against this this war and again today, actually. So there, there is sort of a lot of uh, there is a lot of discontent, I think, although it's, it's fairly sort of an urban middle class phenomenon so far. Do the protests look to be continuing? Do they still have that momentum? Because they've been making all, a whole bunch of arrests. They have been, and they sort of they're continuing spontaneously. Uh, but you know, protesting in Russia is an enormously risky business. You know, one can lose one's job for it. You can be thrown out of university. You could be beaten. You can be arrested. You can do jail time. So it's kind of it's it's, it's it probably doesn't re- represent the full depth of anti-war sentiment. What I would say though is that. Um, is that what we've seen is sort of a lot of sort of Russian celebrities. So people like sports people, you know, musicians, uh, uh, TV presenters, uh, really coming out against the uh, the war and sort of speaking publicly their opposition to it. And that's interesting because these personalities, they all depend essentially for their livelihoods on uh, lucrative contracts with the state media. So they can very easily be blackballed for this. So I think there is a really quite surprising depth of opposition to this war among the Russian people. You know, you said before that Putin is is sort of detached from reality, at least in some respects. So I'm wondering, is there anybody in the Kremlin who has the ability, if they think he's gone too far, and some would, I think, argue that he already has, but even farther than he has already gone, is there anyone or any group of people who could actually say no to him? 
At this point, I'm frankly not sure. You know, we saw a uh, saw an extraordinary performance a few nights ago, just before the war was uh, was declared, uh, when Putin sort of gathered his Security Council, his sort of close, nearest and dearest ministers, and he essentially sort of heckled them for an hour and a half. You know, sort of uh, browbeating them into sort of accepting his line on Ukraine, and and they looked almost like sort of you know naughty school children being shouted at by the teacher. You know, it was it was an extraordinary display, and I think it did. It did sort of underscore the extent to which, you know, politics in this country has really just shrunk to the space between Putin's ears. You know, this is, an, this is a sort of a guy who holds more or less, I think, absolute power in this country at this point. Felix Light, CBS News reporter in Moscow. President Biden today imposed more sanctions, this time on Vladimir Putin and on his foreign minister, the Treasury Department announcing those sanctions shortly after the European Union said it had also approved an asset freeze against both men. But will these sanctions make a difference? Are there harsher measures needed? What would those be? With us is Miatek Bodoshinsky, professor of U.S. foreign policy at Pomona College, also former State Department diplomat, served in Albania, Kosovo, elsewhere. Thanks for being with us, uh, Professor. So we're in this place uh, where, number one, I guess this is a pretty unprecedented, right, sanctioning a world leader directly. But number two, a lot of people have been asking, uh, if not for something like this, then, then when would you do that? It, it seems warranted he started a war. Absolutely. Thanks for having me today. So what do you think of these targeted sanctions on Putin himself and and how heavy do they look to be? I mean, all the sanctions that have been announced so far by the United States and our European allies um, are unprecedented in in so many ways. And, you know, I wish that we had thought about some of these tools in earlier years when Putin was doing all kinds of crazy stuff like poisoning dissidents, you know, overseas and so on. And yet, you know, the money of the oligarchs continued flowing into places like London and, you know, the UK is our close ally and we either, you know, didn't put enough pressure on them or or they didn't listen to the pressure or they chose not to, you know, there's all kinds of examples like that. That's, I don't want to single out the UK. That's just one example. So, so yeah, this is, this is huge. Um, Question is whether it's going to change his behavior in the near term, if he's crazy enough audacious enough, you know, to, to carry out a criminal outrageous act like this, um, then one wonders whether, whether you know, uh, these kinds of sanctions, which he can probably evade in various ways and probably he's prepared for, will make a difference. Well, and, and I guess the problem is that uh, we're kind of already now pulling, up, pulling out almost all of the stops. I mean, we escalated the sanctions today by now, uh, along with the EU, imposing sanctions on the foreign minister and on, on uh, Vladimir Putin himself. So what's left, uh, you know, disconnecting Russia from the SWIFT system, which we should briefly explain to listeners what that is? Sure. I, I mean, there's people who are more qualified to explain the technicalities, but the SWIFT system is, is, is it's, it's a company based in Belgium, I believe, that allows money to be transferred um, among banks internationally. And, um, you know, the U.S. has some, some influence and control over that. We've already put um, uh, sanctions on the, on the Russian banking system, and we could go further with, with SWIFT. But what remains to be done is, is to go after um, Russian energy exports, natural gas, and so on to Europe. The tricky thing there is, of course, that Europe depends on that, on that energy and, and, you know, the European countries are our allies. So I think, you know, they've, they've said clearly to President Biden, that for now, that's a red line, at least some 
some European countries. Yeah. And um, is that and just Swift is related to that because that's how they pay for the energy. So is that really just the bind that they're in because it's the way it works? That's how they get their energy. So if everybody's screaming, you know, completely cut them off from the world economy. Well, they can't because they depend on that energy. Some countries more than others. Right. I mean, so some European countries um, have notably the UK um, have been calling to cut Russia from the SWIFT system. Um, uh, but but others have been more wary of doing so. And, and President Biden is you know, afraid of the potential unintended consequences. An energy crisis um, you know, is, is, is not good for our allies. It's not good politically at home and so on. So uh, if if Russia goes ahead, as it appears to be intent on doing and uh, taking over all of Ukraine and, and uh, uh, jettisoning its current government in favor of a government more favorable to uh, the Kremlin, if it decides to do that and it does it successfully uh, and we're not prepared to uh, sever Russia from the SWIFT system and perhaps we're not prepared, as you had suggested, to more vigorously go after their energy uh, exports because our European allies uh, would probably freak out about that. It almost seems as if then there's nothing really to do since we're not going to go to war. We've already said the U.S. with uh, Russia. I mean, so if we want to take a dispassionate kind of, you know, cold, hard look at the reality, yeah, sure, I guess yeah. it comes down to the fact that, that Putin wants Ukraine more than we're willing to help Ukraine, right? I mean, if we deploy the full might of the of NATO's military, U.S. plus our NATO allies, if we armed, you know, the Ukrainians to the teeth, you know, with more weapons and more things, I mean, I think, I think yeah, but I, I think for a lot of reasons, domestic political reasons, you know, the, the risks um, of a catastrophic war, we're not prepared to do that. So the so so yeah. But I think that Putin will you know face face uh, resistance. He's already facing resistance. Um, potentially face an armed insurgency. So I don't think the Ukrainians will make it easy for him. Um, so that we'll see. So right, um, you try and crash the economy. You try and drag it down. And then the people are even more angry than some of them are. And then you put pressure on the rich. And then you hope that by pressuring all these oligarchs and depriving them of what they want, which is, you know, Western stuff and yachts and all that, that then they get to Putin in some way. And in practice, I mean, how does that work? I, this is Los Angeles. We probably got a bunch of rich oligarch kids running around. Um, do their bank accounts from dad not work anymore? Uh, good. That's a good question. You, I mean, you have to ask somebody who's, you know, better, better at how the banking systems work. I mean, I, I think that, you know, we didn't look at that tool for a long time. I think there's been some, you know, legislation and regulations that have changed that have made it harder for corrupt oligarchs and their families linked to the Kremlin to buy houses, for instance, in, you know, in, in fancy neighborhoods in LA. Um, and that some of that has changed and yet there's still loopholes. And every time we get, you know, the Panama Papers or these other recent disclosures, we we see, you know, more of that. So I think that's the direction that the Biden administration and, and hopefully our European allies are headed as well. And that's where I think we could inflict some pain, maybe not on Putin himself, but on the people around him who then maybe, you know, at some point, um, you know, in, in the future, uh, it's not going to be right away, we'll start to uh, question their relationship with him and maybe start to peel off. And, and maybe that that is that's the long term strategy. But, you know, near term, I don't know if, if, it, if it will change things. Miatek Bodyshinsky, professor of U.S. foreign policy, Pomona College. Thanks. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. 
History made today in Washington, D.C., the president nominating federal judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. She would be the first black woman to serve on the country's highest courts if confirmed, taking over for retiring Justice Stephen Breyer. President Biden made a campaign promise to nominate a black woman to the high court and followed through with us now is Marceline Burke, dean of the University of Oregon School of Law, and Brandy Colander, who is an attorney who helped create the national campaign called She Will Rise, this to push for a black woman to be nominated and confirmed to the Supreme Court. Both of you, thank you for being with us. Brandy, let me uh, start with you. Already there are, you know, some reverberations among more conservative Republicans in Congress, in the Senate, uh, that this nominee is too far to the left. What do you make of that? I appreciate the question and I appreciate the opportunity. You know, She Will Rise is an effort that was established by four um, women who happen to be Black, all because we're really proud Americans and we're, we're completely overjoyed today, largely because we now get to see ourselves represented in one of the three branches of government in a way that we've never had that opportunity to witness before. And so I think while it is a moment where we could easily get sort of pulled into um, some of the, the dog whistle tactics that always seem to sort of rear their heads in these moments, it's a moment of joy. The, I mean, this is a woman who is incredibly qualified. And we decided that because the judiciary seemed like a uh, branch of government that was hard to access, it actually made sense for us to develop this campaign and this initiative to engage new demographics and to help people understand why this court is so influential in their daily lives. Marceline, in terms of what we know about the judge, um, what can we expect uh, of her as a justice, potentially? Yes, good afternoon. I think that as a justice, we can expect to see she has a track record. So we don't have to guess about her judicial temperament or the keenness of her mind, uh, the, the type of the level of analysis that she would bring to the position. And I think that for me, what is really exciting about this and about having her there on the court is that representation matters. And the fact that she is going to bring her own history and experience and perspectives to the court will lend great legitimacy to the actions of the court. Because as Ms. Collender said, you know, this, the Supreme Court makes the decisions, the law of the land that affects everyone in the United States. And thus, it is very important that we see ourselves, everyone gets to see themselves represented in the legal system. Now, Brandy, of course, as you know, even if she is confirmed, it won't tip the balance uh, in the current Supreme Court. It'll still be weighted uh, more heavily on the right wing conservative side. That being said, uh, what sorts of cases do you think she is likely to leave a real imprint on? Everyone she touches. I mean, you know, Dean Burke and I share a, a history. We're both um, attorneys. We've both had opportunities to serve in previous administrations. We both served at the Department of Interior, and we were first in our own right. And I think as, as Black women, and I'm also a member of the Supreme Court Bar, and I think being able to, to in every room and space that we touch, be able to bring our lived experiences to public service, to 
um, every legal interpretation. It helps us as America make societal decision points that are actually informed by more of us. The fact that today in 2022, um, Black people are still questioning and our voting rights are still at jeopardy is a problem. The fact that Black women make 63 cents on the dollar uh, in 2022 compared to white counterparts is a problem. The fact that Black women are three times more likely than their white female counterparts to die in childbirth in 2022 is a problem. We are literally slated to put a Black woman in space, and we have yet to get her seated on the Supreme Court bench. So the reality is, um, it is certainly time. And at the end of the day, we are all better when we are able to make sure that these diverse perspectives are represented. So it is a beautiful moment for every American and there's not a decision that won't come before her where her expertise and lived experience will not add value on day one. Brandy Collender, attorney who helped create the national campaign called She Will Rise and Marcelin Burke, dean of the University of Oregon School of Law. Thanks to you both. CDC says most Americans live in places where healthy people can safely stop wearing masks. This comes in new guidelines that shift from looking at COVID-19 case counts to a more holistic view of COVID risk to a community. So the new metrics, they're still going to consider caseloads, but also take into account hospitalizations, local hospital capacity. It comes as L.A. County is relaxing the indoor mask rules for the places that are checking the vaccines, and then California as a whole ending its statewide indoor mask mandate. With us is Dr. Andrew Neumer, Professor of Population Health and Disease Prevention at UC Irvine. Doctor, thanks for being back on the show. So let's just start with the CDC, and then we'll kind of drill down from there. But um, shifting into this kind of a thing, not just caseloads, but uh, how the hospitals are, risk to communities. Is that the approach that I guess was inevitable because some of the states and counties were already beating them to it? Yeah, I think it's inevitable. Uh, thanks for having me back on your show. It's, uh, you, you know, people aren't going to uh, mask indefinitely. Uh, people aren't going to mask 365, uh, you know, for forever. So, and, but COVID will be with us forever. So we, we need to be selective in, in how often we, we go full force on the masking um, so it, it's, it's not maximum protection, but it's choosing a, a level of protection that they think people will tolerate. All right. So, uh, I think I probably speak for many people who are listening now. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do now <laughs> with masks. <laughs> I have no idea. Do what uh, makes you feel safe. Is, is that well, the bottom I, line? <laughs> I mean, is the bottom line is just, if you want to wear it, wear it. If you don't want to wear it, don't wear it and move on. Is that it? I mean, I, th I think a lot of the KNX listeners are probably, you know, in the same situation. It's and it's understandable because the communication has been really poor. Um, I personally am vaccinated. I still mask when I go to indoor places outside my own home. Uh, so at the grocery store, I'm wearing a mask um, and I'm wearing a, a good quality mask. Um you know, I mean, people, some of your listeners are, are not masking now and are against uh, having to mask and, and, and they won't be required to anymore. Um, you know, some of your listeners are, are going to be very cautious. And, you know, I, I would like to tell them that they should feel comfortable continuing to mask. And uh, I suspect that very few of your listeners are simply following the CDC guidelines to the letter and, and are doing exactly what the CDC says and therefore will, will change their behavior now as a result of this announcement. But, um, you know, I'm, so it, it is complicated. I mean, I mean, masks are a barrier between our respiratory tract and, and the rest of the, the world. And so 
Um, it, it, it helps prevent other people from getting sick if we're sick, and it, and it does help us from getting infected if, if people around us are infected. So it's something that I'm doing, but I understand, you know, that people don't necessarily want to do it forever. And, you know, we should keep our powder dry for, uh, there's going to be more waves of COVID. Uh, and so, you know, it, we're, we're coming out of a wave now and into a trough, thank goodness. And hopefully we stay in that trough for a long, long time, but I, d- I don't think we've seen the last of COVID. And, and so we should, just be flexible, I guess. Is yeah, the name of the I mean, game. to that point, I think you've even been on the air before saying kind of if if we're going to get to this point, maybe this point that we're in, give people the spring and the summer a little bit, because if they do say, hey, it's winter, we got something, you got to put them back on, then there's probably going to be more people apt to put them back on if they've had a break. I, I said that on, on your air, uh, if I'm not mistaken, last June. Yes. <laughs> what, what comes around goes around yeah, comes just, around just <laughs> you know? bouncing so, back and forth so, in this so world I, i'm just curious so when will, would somebody such as yourself when would you feel comfortable no longer wearing a mask inside a, a grocery store or a movie theater or, or whatever since covid is not and i think you're absolutely right about that is not going to go away anytime in the near future because well, we've w- heard from listeners too who have said you know i'm going to take them off when the doctors take them off yeah exactly yeah right so when are you taking yours off <laughs> well that's a good that's a good question um I, I mean to be to be clear i i i have you know enjoyed a restaurant dining uh including indoor restaurants so uh since I can't feed myself through a mask, I have, you know, <laughs> in that sense, you know, I've taken it off already. Uh, you know, the grocery store um, is kind of the same experience to me, whether whether I mask or not. Um, so uh, I, I've kind of got, gotten used to masking. I probably... So wait a minute. So, so I hold wait, 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 I mean, so, so, so let, let's now let's be I honest. I mean, none of it okay. makes sense. Yeah, no, no, right, right, and so, especially Orange County, yeah, LA right. County. You go over the line, and it's like yeah. oh. so. With, with all due respect, Doctor, aren't you kind of like we all are? Aren't you sort of deluding yourself because it's you're taking it off to eat in a restaurant? I do too. You go into the grocery store where probably your exposure is less because you're only in it for maybe five minutes as opposed to eating for two hours, and then you put it back on. Isn't it just that you're creating, as we all do, this sort of psychological sense of security that really isn't there? Uh, I mean, not exactly, although I do see what you're saying. I mean, I, I mean, there's a lot more people in, 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 a, in a crowded grocery store than, than in, a, in a restaurant, and uh, you are there for less time, but there's more people um, – you know, I, I, th- I think there is the risk isn't zero in a, in a grocery store of, of getting a, you know, a breakthrough infection. And uh, I just feel like you, to me, it's the same difference whether I shop with the mask on or not. I mean, that's that's the, the end, that's the bottom line. Like I, I leave the grocery store and, I'm, and I, I don't I don't feel ha- less happy if, if I did it with a mask on. Uh, and so I do it with a mask on because it, it gives me a small benefit and uh, and the cost is de minimis. Uh, you know, I, I, if I, I, I'm not going to go to a restaurant and watch my friends eat while I sit there with, with a mask. Uh, so I don't <laughs> I do hope it. not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, be, before I was having vac- fun. Yes. Enjoy your yeah. meal. But before I was vaccinated, you know, I, I went for, for quite a long uh, period without going to restaurants. Uh, so, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, we're, you know, I hope the listeners are vaccinated and boosted and, you know, I, I would gladly trade all the masking for, you know, much, much higher uh, vaccination rates. But I mean, I, you know, masks do 
have a role to play in this. Um, I, I don't think they're a purely fictional benefit. Um, you know, another another aspect to this is indoor air quality. I mean, if if people aren't going to mask, uh, you know, we can do things that will help them avoid COVID, like improving the indoor air quality. We can we can scrub air with UV light, and we can circulate it, and we can do outside air replacement to make air uh, healthier to breathe for everybody, you know, whether or not they're masked. And I, and I think that's going to be something we're going to be hearing a lot more about in the coming years. All right, Dr. Andrew Neumer, we got to run Professor of Population Health Disease Prevention, UC Irvine. Doc, thanks for coming back. That's so that, in depth. That cleared everything for the week. up. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Do what makes you feel comfortable. Yeah. All right.